Why church? Anthony, could you get that, uh, get that slide up? Today we wrap up our series entitled, Why Church? Now there are many, many legitimate reasons to question the church and its legitimacy. We have a history of violence, corruption, hypocrisy, and judgmentalism in the church. So throughout this series, we've submitted our appeal all the way to the top, to God, asking God the question, Dear God, why church? And God has responded. God has responded with a series of images revealed to us in the New Testament. Why church? Because church is the family of God, the body of Christ. Now say it with me the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the community of salvation, and last but not least, the servant to the world. Our our assignment today is to explore the final image of the church as the servant to the world. There are more images in the New Testament for church, but we we will end with this one today. So let's begin with this photo. Anybody know who this is in the white? The Pope, yes, the Pope, the current Pope of the Catholic Church, Pope Francis. Now, this sermon is not about Pope Francis, but this image serves as a striking illustration of our text for today. Pope Francis, doing a little reading, he is unquestionably in the top ten of the world's most powerful people. Did you know that? One of the most powerful people in the world. And what is he doing here? He is washing the feet of a small child during Holy Week. Now, I don't know what you know about Pope Francis. I don't know what kind of impressions you have formed in your mind already about the man. And maybe you think this photo is nothing more than a publicity stunt. But consider this about Pope Francis in comparison with his his predecessors. I'm indebted to Eric Stoltz, a Roman Catholic deacon, for these, these, um, this list. So consider this. Unlike his predecessors, Pope Francis refers to himself as Bishop of Rome, not as Supreme Pontiff. Unlike his predecessors, he refuses to wear a luxury fur under his cap, lined cap with luxury fur. He prefers instead a more modest apparel. Unlike his predecessors, he refuses to cruise around in a Mercedes bulletproof limo. Instead, do you know what he rolls around? And he rolls around Rome in a Ford Focus. That's right. (laughs) Unlike his predecessors, Pope Francis refuses to make his home in the Apostolic Palace. He prefers instead a humble guest home while dining in the cafeteria. Unlike his predecessors. He speaks in a plain, straightforward manner, not in the highly formal, high and mighty tone of previous popes. And finally, unlike his predecessors, Pope Francis washes the feet of the laity during Holy Week, including women, children, and prisoners, compared to previous popes who would only wash the feet of priests. This, my friends, is one of the ten most powerful people in our world. And here's what he's doing. Here's what he's made a habit of doing. He's washing the feet of the poor. 
I don't see Vladimir Putin washing anyone's feet, despite professing to be a Russian Orthodox Christian. I don't see Jeff Bezos washing anyone's feet, despite his company's reputable customer service. I don't see anyone else on the world's most powerful people list washing anyone's feet. But Pope Francis, despite the ways he may see things differently from you and me, nevertheless, he has learned something important from Jesus about power. He has learned from Jesus, the most powerful of all, that no one is greater than the Master. He has learned from Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that the way to greatness is service. Jesus is the one who washes the world in his cleansing blood, and he's the one who calls the church to be the servant to the world. And just to make sure we don't mess this one up, he leaves us an example to follow. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Before the festival of Passover, Jesus knew that his time had come to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus and his disciples were sharing the evening meal. The devil had already provoked Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the table and he took off his robes. Picking up a linen towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a wash basin. And he began to wash his disciples' feet. He dried their feet with the towel he was wearing. And when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but you will understand later. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't have a place with me. Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my, my head and my hands. Jesus responded, those who have bathed need only to have their feet washed because they are completely clean. You disciples are clean, but not every one of you. He knew who would betray him. That's why he said, not every one of you is clean. And after he washed the disciples' feet, he put on his robes and he returned to the place at his table. And he said to his disciples, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak correctly because I am. 
If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you too must wash each other's feet. I have given you an example. Just as I have done, you also must do. I assure you, servants aren't greater than their master, nor are those who are sent greater than the one who sent them. Since you know these things, you will be happy if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. This gesture of Jesus, this symbolic act of washing his disciples' feet, it occurs in the context of four things. Number one, first it occurs before the festival of Passover. The Passover is when the sacrificial lamb is slaughtered and offered to God for the sins of Israel. This gesture of Jesus is preparation for his own sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Second, this gesture of Jesus occurs during the final days of Jesus' ministry. That's, his, that's another piece of context. It's during the final days of his ministry, and it's with his own disciples that his final days will, will, will be spent. The text says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 1. A third aspect of the context in which the gesture of Jesus occurs is found in verse 2. It occurs during the evening meal, after the sun had already set, and after the heart of Judas had already grown dark. There's an enemy in the camp when Jesus performs this humble service, and this very enemy is also numbered among those whose feet are washed by the Lord. And the fourth and final piece of context for this gesture of Jesus is found in the Gospel of Luke. On the same evening that this happens, Luke informs us that there was a heated debate that occurred among the disciples behind Jesus' back. They were, they were arguing about something. You know what that was? They were arguing about greatness. Namely, they were arguing about which one of them should be regarded as the greatest. Jesus sets them straight once and for all. And in John's gospel, he sets them straight not so much with his words, but with his actions. His actions show that the path to greatness goes downhill. So that's the context for the symbolic act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Before the festival of Passover, during the days of Jesus' final ministry, as the world darkens and the disciples debate, Jesus rises from the table. He takes off his outer robe. He picks up a linen towel. He ties it around his waist. He pours water into a bowl, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he's wearing. Now, you have to understand what this meant in the ancient world. Uh, anybody had their foot washed lately? <laughs> it's not exactly uh, something we do in our culture. However, when I give the girls a bath, Lily really likes washing my feet for some reason, so it's kind of nice, actually. <laughs> but we've got to understand that in the ancient world, foot washing was like 
It was like cleaning the toilet. <laughs> no one wanted to do it, but it had to be done. Foot washing, you see, was essential in the dusty environment of Palestine, in a world before showers and closed-toe shoes. You know, it's like if you, you walk, take a walk on the beach, but forget to wash your feet before getting into your car. That sand is never going away. <laughs> it's important to wash your feet. Foot washing had to be done in the ancient world, but no one wanted to do it. So these Jewish men, including the Jewish disciples, guess who they made do it? Guess who these Jewish men, who were the very much the products of a patriarchal society, guess who they forced into doing the dirty work of foot washing? Their wives and children and Gentile slaves. That's who did the foot washing. In fact, these dudes thought foot, foot washing was such an unmasculine thing to do that they even prohibited Jewish slaves who were men from doing it. Male Jewish slaves were prohibited by law from foot washing. This was a menial task that was beneath them, beneath the Jewish men. They were not born into privilege for such a demeaning, humiliating act, or so the disciples thought as they argued about who was the greatest. But then comes Jesus, a Jewish man, but also the divine Lord, who had come from the heavenly Father and who was returning to the Father and to whom all authority and power on heaven and earth was given. And what does Jesus do among the proud, privileged, and patronizing disciples. He rises from the table. Can you imagine yourself around the table this time? And he takes off his outer robe, and he picks up a linen towel like a slave, and he ties it around his waist like a woman, and he pours water into a bowl like a child. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And as he dries them with the towel that he's wearing, he dramatically transforms our deepest assumptions about God, greatness, and what it means to be God's people. To be God's people, to be the church, means to be a servant to the world one who is willing to wash another's feet. The church is the servant to the world. Not the servant of the world, for the world is not our master. Jesus is our master. We do not take our cues from the world. We take our cues from the master, Jesus, we are Christ's servants, but Christ sends us into the world. Recall verse 16 when Jesus says, I assure you, servants aren't greater than their master, nor are those who are sent greater than the one who sent them. We are sent by Jesus into the world. 
Or as Jesus says later on the same evening, he says, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father gave me a mission, so I am giving you a mission. And the mission is to be the servants to the world. And just as Jesus humbled himself and made himself servant to the world, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so likewise we are to make ourselves servants, humbled and willing to do whatever God calls us to do. Now let's return to the dinner table where this all happened. Peter, remember Peter? from last week? Peter, the one whom the Lord said, on this rock I will build my church. Peter was surely in contention for that top spot among Jesus' disciples as they argued about who was going to be the greatest. And Peter, when Jesus goes to wash his feet, he responds appropriately to the shock of Jesus' actions. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Remember, (laughs) Jewish males did not wash people's feet, let alone rabbis and lords and masters of the world. Jesus replied, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. And to understand later, he did. For tradition has it that when Peter himself was martyred for his faith in Jesus, you know how he was killed? He was crucified upside down. Why upside down? Because he felt too unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now in taking this humble servant posture but you will understand later. And Peter understood. But while Peter's first response around the table was absolutely appropriate, his second was inappropriate and presumptuous. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. I love Peter. (laughs) He's often depicted in the scriptures with his foot in his mouth. No, Peter shouts at his master with vigor, you will never wash my feet. As one commentator says, Leon Morris, he writes this, he says, Peter brushes aside Jesus' suggestion that something is going on whose significance he does not know. To him, it is unthinkable that Jesus would ever engage in this menial activity of washing his servants' feet. Or as another commentator writes, Peter is humble enough to see the incongruity of Christ's action, yet proud enough to dictate to his master. So Peter says, no, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus responds with patience and grace. Unless I wash you, you won't have any place with me. And Peter completely misses the inner meaning to Jesus' words, and he says, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. 
That's not necessary, Jesus replies, because the point is not the literal washing of the feet. The point is not the physical cleansing of the body. The point is the washing away of our sins. And beyond that, the point is the way in which God chooses to wash away our sins. The way God chooses to accomplish our salvation. And it's the way downward, the way of a servant. Friends, God saves us not by climbing the ladder towards greatness and therein winning our admiration. God saves us not by mounting a war horse and riding into battle and fighting as a hero. Rather, God saves us by climbing down the ladder, all the way down into the pit where we live, the pit of our lives, all the way down into the pit of death. God saves us by climbing down the ladder and enduring the worst, therein ensuring our best. God saves us by becoming a servant of all, though in reality he is the master of all. And God saves us by commanding us to go and do likewise, to become servants to the world, to wash one another's feet, to clean the toilets <laughs> for others. God saves us by commanding us to do likewise. And this is a salvation from the deathly grip of greatness and all its empty promises. My friends, the church is lots of things. The church is God's idea. The church is the family of God. It's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's the body of Christ. The church is also the servant to the world. Maybe it'd be better to say that the church is the slave to the world. Because that actually captures better Jesus' dramatic point as he washes his disciples' feet. Nothing is beneath us as disciples of Jesus. No matter how much power and privilege and wealth we have, nothing is beneath us as disciples of Jesus. Power and privilege and wealth are not bad things. Jesus has all the power and privilege and wealth in reality. They're not bad things. But the more we have of it, the more essential it is to our souls that we align ourselves to the spirit of Jesus, a spirit of humility, and sometimes of humiliating service for the sake of others, even for the sake of the Judases in our midst. Jesus says, love your enemies, and then he washed the feet of his enemy the feet of the one who was guilty of his own premeditated murder. That's the kind of God we worship, my friends. That's the character of God, the God we serve. The God revealed in Jesus is the servant God, and the servant God is our master, and servants are not greater than their masters. Therefore, since Jesus, our Lord and teacher, and God revealer, has washed our feet, we must also wash each other's feet. 
We also must be willing to serve in any and every possible way God calls us to serve. Nothing is beneath us, remember? Not even washing another's feet. Not even scrubbing the toilets. Not even, or worse, not even serving on a committee. (laughs) Since you know these things, Jesus says, you will be happy if you do them. So let us be the church. Let us be servants to the world, humbly offering God whatever God calls us to do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Drop clicker for dramatic effect. Okay, friends, now I'd like us to transition into a time of prayer. There's lots to pray about, lots to pray about in the world, in our community, in our church, in our lives, lots to pray about that we don't want anyone to know about. (laughs) And God knows all these things already, but God invites us for our sake to get them out into the air, to speak them out, and to pray for the world.